0: All right. So today we're going to uh, we're going to start into our Easter series. Um, next week is Palm Sunday. And then the following week is, is Easter. And so rather than hopping into James 2 for today and then breaking for Palm Sunday and Easter, we're just going to do three weeks of uh, of revving up for Easter series. And so the perspective we're going to take toward Easter this year is looking at the kingdom of God. Um, this is something that I've been uh, sensing like really, really strongly in both uh, my heart and and then the ministry that I engage both here at Cornerstone and in Lebanon and um, across southeastern PA um, is that um, I think that God is calling us to deeper and um, truer understandings of what it means for us to be in his kingdom, what his kingdom is, uh, what it's not, And what it means for us to be uh, children of the king who live within his kingdom according to his government. So some of the stuff I'm going to teach about today and next week is stuff that you maybe have heard me say before. Uh, Some of the stuff is stuff that you haven't heard me say before. Because this is going to be more of a um, a synergistic teaching. Taking some different points of scripture and pulling them together into the auspices of the book of Matthew. Which is where we'll be focusing our Easter series. Um, Each one of the gospels takes a different perspective on Jesus. Matthew takes the perspective of the king, right? Um, and so that we're going to focus this kingdom thing from the book of Matthew. Um, today we'll be in Matthew 16. Next week we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. The week after that we'll be at the Great Commission. So um, we're going to be camping out in that. But the theme and the idea here is is a look at the kingdom of God a look at the government of God from the way that, that Jesus would have us understand it as opposed to the way I think that a lot of us have come to like sort of naturally uh, or, or falsely uh, understood the kingdom. So uh, that being said, let's pray. We'll, we'll ask God for that insight and then we'll step into the text. God, thank you for uh, for who you are and for um, the fact that you are the king. Like You are king of kings. You are Lord of lords. You reign supreme. Uh, in you, all things hold together and consist. And you are over and above everything. Everything exists for the sake of your supremacy and your glory. Uh, so we need to understand what that means. Um, we, we need to know what that is like in our heads. We need to feel that in our hearts. Our spirits need to be transformed by that. Um, we, we need to have a revelation from you to see what it is that you see and to feel what it is that you feel and to live how it is that you call us to live. So, God, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. Holy Spirit, come and illuminate us, speak to us, draw us into alignment with who you are, into submission to you, your ways, and your kingdom. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation uh, chapter 2. We're going to start off with a quick nod to uh, what it is that we think of as the kingdom. As, as the Western church. This is what we th- tend to think of as the kingdom of God. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, And bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is a basic concept of the kingdom of God in the Western church. Which is that you have good teaching. And if there's false teaching present, then you teach against the false teaching. And you set those things right. right? We don't want a bunch of false words about God or the Bible running around our church. We're going to keep things right. We're going to believe the right things. Right? Another key component is that we patiently endure. Like this is the kingdom in the church. Like this is a big work, and the work is something that we're called to. And so we're just going to keep. We understand we're running a marathon here. We're not we're not running a hundred yard dash, right? We're, we're running a marathon. So we're going to patiently endure. We're going to keep moving this thing forward. We're going to keep it. We're going to keep advancing, right? We've uh, um, bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So we're going to work hard right? We're going to work hard, and where there is need, we're going to figure out how to meet that need. And if that means we start some programs to meet that need, great. And if that means that we build some churches to meet that need, great. If that means that we empower some people and send them to faraway lands to meet those needs, great, but we're going to work hard. These are some basic concepts of what it means for us to be the people of the kingdom in the church. Work hard, work hard for a long time, and get it right. Those three things, boom, kingdom. Right? And this is what we build our big churches on. Right, Hard work, programs that meet every need. Right? We structure things to meet the lost. We send people overseas. We do this, we do that. We make sure it's right. And at that point then, we got it. Right? The kingdom of God is now among us. The problem with the situation is that Jesus has a word against them. I have this against you. Verse 4. You have abandoned the love of you had it first. I think it is very easy for us to step into verses 2 and 3 and live our lives according to that government, live our lives according to that way, where where the concepts voiced in verses 2 and 3 become the way that we live. And then we think, okay, if I do this, then I'm part of the kingdom. Or worse yet, is this idea that what I'm called to do is to work hard, to work hard for a long time and to get it right, and then at some point in time, the kingdom of God is going to come. That's even more dangerous because that's a complete illegitimization of the teachings of Christ. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is something that God calls us to now the kingdom of god is something that you and i are to live in and be governed by now it is not an out there proposition the kingdom of god has come it came in the incarnated christ the jews said no and so god said fine and anybody that wants to come on in but if you're going to come in you're going to do it my way and my way says that you love right that you love first all these great things, all these great programs, all this hard work, all this patient endurance, all the getting it right and getting it right and getting it right, I don't care. That doesn't matter primarily to me. What is primary to me is where is your love? Jesus, out of seven, ver- seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus threatens to blot out one of them, and it's the one that looks like it's getting everything right. One thing that we love as the American church is getting it right. And we pride ourselves on getting it right. Now, you can go to a Christian bookstore and stand there all day and read books about how to get it right, writer. (laughs) And that's a serious problem. It's a serious problem. Jesus calls us to first love. First love. This is his principle, right? This is his principle. And this is the principle that he most desires to see in the church at Ephesus. This church is getting it right so rightly. He says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. So remember from where you have come. Remember the place from where you have fallen and repent and return and do the things that you did at first. What's happening here in Revelation 2 is a false concept of the kingdom of God. What is also a false concept of the kingdom of God is the idea that the kingdom of God is out there. Turn to Luke 17. This is my favorite saying by Jesus about his kingdom. It's just two quick verses, and it's so easy to overlook. It's so easy to just sort of like, Jesus is teaching, and then he says these two things that just blow my mind, and, it's, and you can just miss it in, as, as you're just sort of like reading along. Um, Verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 17 of Luke, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is something that you see in hindsight. (laughs) The kingdom of God—it's—it's not this thing where it's like where it comes in all of its glory and suddenly, you know, and and here comes God marching out, you know, and this is my kingdom, you know, and he's you know swiping away all of the all the goats and herding in all of the sheep and judging those who can't get it right rightly enough, you know. No, the kingdom of God came in the incarnated Jesus. Jesus brought the kingdom, and the kingdom of God is now in our midst. What else does Jesus say about his, about the midst? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am. Where? In their midst. Right? The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is not this thing that you see in all of its glory settling down. Now, don't get me wrong. The second coming of Christ is Jesus coming in the clouds to come forever destroy Right, Sin, death, in the grave forever and ever to apply the power of his resurrection across the board. Uh, you know, Kingdom of darkness, completely fallen, no more struggle, no more death, no more tears. Yeah, that's absolutely going to be seen. But he's simply coming to possess the kingdom that he already set. He'll come to the kingdom that he's already put in place through his incarnation, his death and his resurrection, and he'll sit on that throne and reign from there. So the kingdom of God is not this thing that is this... That, that, that's sort of like this massive picture that sets itself down in front of you when you watch the video play. The kingdom of God is in your midst. It, it is among you. It is among you. And this phrase is important, and it should be understood almost literally. Right? The kingdom of God. Right? The kingdom of God. All of the words that come to mind as a result of kingdom are very much in play here. Right? So if we talk about the kingdom of Henry the right, what kind of things come to mind? Well, you have a ruler, right? And that ruler has a bride, and he rules from a throne, right? And he sets down laws, and he rules justly or unjustly, in his case maniacally, right? And this thing sort of plays itself out. And all of his laws that he rules from his throne and decrees are followed or not followed. If they're followed, then there is peace. If they're not followed, then there is justice. Right? This kingdom concept has become sort of like this pithy saying for Christians. I think God means this absolutely, literally upon us. That you are part of his kingdom. What that means is that God has a government. He has a way of setting things down. Democratic republics are not biblical. Kingdoms are. Right? Kingdoms are. And I don't think we should become a monarchy because the only kingdom I want to be a part of is his. I was just in London. So, yeah. Don't get me started on British people. Okay. You know, I love British people. Don't get me started on England. All right. I did make a snide comment about the revolution. And, and this, this British guy goes, pretty cheeky. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that means, but he thought it was pretty funny. So uh, I think he was making fun of me. Um, The government of God, the government of God in our midst, right? The government of God in our midst is this idea of a government come to us, right? That God calls us to be a part of his government. He lays down laws. He has ways that this government runs, and he means for that government to run in this way. And when he calls us to be his children and he calls us into his kingdom, he is calling us into his way of doing things. He is calling us into this kingdom life that he has set up for us. It's what he's continually calling you and I into now. You and I are invited to be participants in the kingdom of God. And Jesus thinks of this as absolutely necessary and real. Right? Necessary and real. Think about how he taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, these are present tense statements. And if you read this in Greek, and if you translate it just like literally in a way that doesn't actually make sense, what, the way it would read is, thy kingdom come now. Thy will be done now on earth as it is in heaven. Here, I'll say the first phrase. You say now. Thy kingdom come. Now. Yeah, but that's not a, a very good way to say it. I, I mean, come on. We're part of a kingdom with a king who has won everything. Right? Thy kingdom come. Now. Thy will be done now. on earth as it is in heaven. How perfectly is God's kingdom in heaven? Completely. Right? That's how he wants his kingdom here. How perfectly is God's will done in heaven? Completely, across the board. That's how he wants, and he's not talking pipe dreams here. Prayer is never a pipe dream for Jesus. Prayer can do anything God can do. That's a profound statement. That's not me, that's E.M. Bounds, right? Prayer can do anything God can do. You tune into the frequency of God. Well, man, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. Remember that, though, because I might forget to bring it up again later, and it's good stuff. Okay. Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is Jesus' idea of the kingdom. The first thing, his first message of preaching in Matthew 3 is, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And it doesn't mean that it's, like, soon going to be here. It means it's near you, like, here I am, there you are, we're close, here's the kingdom. Right? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's upon you. It's among you. It's in your midst. So change. Repent. Get in line. Thy kingdom come now. Thy will be done now. On earth as it is in heaven. Just like it is there is how it can be here. How? How? How's that true? If the people of God will be the people of God, the kingdom of God will evidence itself. You heard what say said? If the people of God will be the people of God, then the kingdom of God will evidence itself. Now this is the part where it's like, the church in Ephesus was clearly being the people of God, right? I mean, they were making disciples, they were doing evangelism, they were working hard, they were teaching, they were working consistently, patiently enduring, people were coming to them and trying to get them to believe false things. They were saying, no, we're not going to believe that. We're going to believe the right things. We're going to be about the right stuff. Jesus gave us work to do, and we're going to continue that work, and we're going to work upon it as long as he needs us to. We endure, we are patient, watch us go. If that's not the kingdom, then what is the kingdom? And that's the whole point, is that the church in Ephesus lost the government of God. They were pursuing the kingdom of God according to their understanding of what the kingdom of God was supposed to be. If the kingdom of God is a government of God because God is a king who sets up a government with ways that he wants his kingdom to to run, then that means that he's got certain laws by which he wants his kingdom to work. What's the first law of God? Love. Love is the first law of God. Love for who? Love for him. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest law? The answer should be, keep the Sabbath. That's what Exodus 31 says. right, keep the Sabbath. Jesus completely turns it. The first law of the kingdom of God is this. The first law of the kingdom is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. These are the laws of the kingdom. If you go to this king, if you go into God's kingdom, and somebody says to you, and somebody says, well, I'm not from here. I just came into these realms. How is it that this place works? The first answer should be love. We love each other. We love our king more than anything else, and then we love everybody else. I love you. Come here. Right? That's what a hug sounds like. Take your Bibles. Turn to Matthew 16. This is where we'll be the rest of our time, in Matthew 16. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some say, and they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In this verse, in these verses, 13 to 20, I think Jesus lays down the basic fundamental understandings of what it means for us to be part of the government of God that is the kingdom of God. This is a very, very governmental concept passage of Scripture, right? But you've got to think about it like a Jew instead of thinking about it like a Westerner because we tend to take this thing and argue about whether or not Peter's the Pope. No, Peter's not the Pope, All right? Peter's statement about who Jesus is is a rock. It is a foundation point. It is something that the kingdom of God can be built on, and it's what Jesus says the kingdom of God will be built on. The initial initial question is the question as to whether or not you're part of the kingdom. Hey, I'm a part of God's kingdom. Who do you say that Jesus is? I think Jesus is a good prophet. You're not part of the kingdom. Who do you say that Jesus is? Ah, Jesus was a good teacher. Nope. Who do you say that Jesus is? I don't even believe there is a Jesus. But I like the way the kingdom works. Can I be here? No. Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? right? But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, with that you are saved. Entrance into the kingdom comes through one way, and it is confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and faith that he is all there is. There is no dancing into the kingdom and dancing out of the kingdom. There is no dual citizenship. You can't have two passports. To be in the kingdom is to be in it. To be in it fully. And to miss the government of God living in the kingdom produces a confused and stressful life. A life of confusion and hard work that the people in Ephesus were experiencing, I think. Blessed are you, Jesus says to him. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you this, you are Peter. And on this rock, on Peter's confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against now. This is interesting. This is interesting, right? Because Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Um, where, where did my thing go? I had a I had a slide for this. I had a I had a really cool like this is hey this is what ecclesia means. Boom. All right, ecclesia. Upon this rock I will build my church. Folks, does the church exist yet in Matthew 16? Has Acts 2 happened yet? Is there any Pentecost that's taken place? No, no. I mean, heck, at this point the disciples they're still pretty wishy washy about the whole situation themselves, right? Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. But there's no church. So what, what's Jesus getting at here? Jesus is getting at a governmental concept. The word that he uses for church is a word that they would have understood. Notice, nobody's like, um, Jesus, what are you talking about? Right? They, they, they go with it. There's an understanding. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Ecclesia are called out ones. Right? That's the actual like, literal meaning. are called out ones. A gathering. Particularly, interestingly, a municipal gathering is how this would have been understood in Roman culture. Right? So if we're living in Lebanon, right? and uh, let's say Lebanon is Roman culture, and something's wrong, as things tend to be in Lebanon sometimes. And we need to have a meeting about some of the stuff that's wrong. Right? We need to have a meeting about homelessness in Lebanon. All right, well, we're going to have an ecclesia. We're going to have a gathering. But we can't have all you people show up because too many cooks spoil the broth. And frankly, I know what you think, and you're gonna disagree with me, so I'm not gonna call you out. (laughs) I'm gonna call out somebody that don't agree with me. So you come and you come and you come and you come out of this whole group, you four, you come to the ecclesia on Saturday night. This is a municipal gathering, and at this ecclesia we will discuss homelessness and we will make some decisions about how to deal with homelessness in Lebanon. Right? so come to the ecclesia. That's the idea. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Ekklesia means relationships with power. That's an ecclesia. An ecclesia are relationships with power. I want to engage you. I want to engage you. I want to engage you. And I want to engage you to come together to discuss this thing that is happening. I'm calling you out to engage an authoritative concept together about what it means for us to care for the place where we are. This is our kingdom. Our kingdom needs some order to it. You come, and we'll have a meeting about it, and we'll talk about it. That's an ecclesia. Jesus says, upon this rock, upon the fact that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my gathering. I will build my people who I infuse with my power to come together in my name and to be about the things that I tell them to be about. Well, Jesus, what do you want us to do? Well, he's going to get to that. But in the meantime, he does want you to know this, that in this governmental idea that is an ecclesia, in this municipal gathering, whereby authority is vested to make decisions about homelessness in Lebanon, or whereby authority is vested for the people of God, to be the people of God, it's important for you to know this, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. God's chosen ones. Now this is, again, an interesting phrase. Never in my life have I seen on movies or anything like a medieval charge across the field with a bunch of people wielding gates. What are we going to go to war with? How about lances and horses? How about gates? That's a great idea. Let's just get some gates and charge across the field and beat them about the head with our gates. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Something. All right. It's this beautiful song. I mean, it really, it really is. Um, it's, just, it's like a heavenly angelic voice from nowhere. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Think Old Testament here. All right. Think Old Testament. If Ted and I have a conflict, if Ted and I live in a city that's part of a kingdom, and Ted and I have a conflict, and we can't work it out between us. We need a judge to rule on the conflict. In Old Testament Jewish culture, where do you go for that judgment to happen? You go to the gates. The judge sits at the gates. Right? So Ted and I can get our conflict worked out at the gates. The gate is also a place where that judge sits and say we're in the middle of something and across the back comes like these four carts, right? These four carts driven by people that the judge doesn't recognize. The judge would stop and say, hey, you two, hold on. Hey! What's in those carts? And where did they come from? Wow, this is full of, you know, uh, wood from Moab. Well, we currently don't have a trade agreement with Moab, and frankly, the wood from there stinks. So you're going to come in here and try and upcharge our people to buy crappy wood from a crappy place? I don't think so. Turn those things around and get them back to Moab. The gate Is where judgment happens. The gate is where something is either allowed in or something is cast out. The gate is where government resides. The gates are where judgment happens. Upon this rock I will build my church. I will set up my municipal, governmental, called out ones, my people, and they will live according to my name and my ways. And the government of that place will have no authority over this. Someone say amen. Amen. Jiminy Cricket, speak up, folks. All right. Um, There is an absolute victory on the part of the people of God. What's the most powerful place? Mordor. Mordor. Uh, You know, just, I mean, this is a powerful army that comes against, you know, these people that sort of like ragtag bunch. But if you read Lord of the Rings, the ragtag bunch is the ecclesia, right? Mordor is the black gate. The black gate, gate, gates of hell, not able to be prevailed against. The people stand. And the group who shouldn't win because love is their rule suddenly are victorious in Jesus' name. That is what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus in Matthew 16 to a bunch of people who'd yet to understand the fullness of what is actually going on in this situation, is laying down the basic governmental concepts of how his kingdom works. You're right, Peter. On on the fact that I am the Messiah, on my kingship, on my rule, I will call out my people, and I will set them up according to my government, and the government of that other powerful place that you should be afraid of, you need have no fear, because it cannot prevail against you the judgment and the government, the place of application and laws and values of the kingdom will stand against the gates of hell. Uh, I don't want to go that far yet. All right. So I'm in Indonesia this past week. And uh, Indonesia is a really interesting place. Um, it's predominantly Muslim, uh, almost, almost across the board, um, Indonesia is the most densely populated Muslim country in the world, um, and so the first place that we were was a city called Balikpapan that had um, uh, just was fully, fully Muslim, um, like in every way that you can think about it. Um, you know, there was five call to prayers every day, and um, uh, mosques everywhere. Um, I mean, there wasn't even an ability to like engage culturally any concept of Christianity on any level. It just wasn't there, you know, like it wasn't part of the the language or anything like that. Um, And the way and the norms and the laws and the values of that system presented themselves. Like I was standing there with uh, three other guys one day. We were waiting for a taxi um, to head out, and a taxi pulled up that had three women in it, three Muslim women, all in headdresses, all covered, you know, and uh, the taxi driver pulled up. He turned around. He told them to get out so that we could get in because women are oppressed in Muslim culture and you honor, you honor men, right? So this is like, this is the gates of hell trying to prevail against the kingdom of God. And there's no prevailing in that situation, right? I mean, it's just, it's one of these, those, this is what happens, you know, when another government is, is at play. Um, you know, Islam, <laughs> it was like 4 a.m. every morning, boom, call to prayer. If you didn't want to wake up, tough. You know, it didn't matter who you were or where you came from. It didn't matter if you were a tourist or not. Every mosque in the city started blowing its own call to prayer sometime between 4 and 5. Right? The call to prayer generally takes around 20 minutes. If they could all just get it from 4 to 4.20, I could deal with it. But some people didn't start till like 4.45. And I think they did it on purpose. And, uh, and it's just this, like, they, like they, they're in, their government is invading your government. And the way you want to run your, like, I brought a government of the kingdom. Well, that was a very different government. And so this government was asking me to play ball with this government. So the question then is, what do I do when I wake up at 4 in the morning? You know, I can get really upset about this dude waking me up at 4 a.m. in the morning, or I can bring my government to play against his government, right? And I've already been told that his judgments aren't going to stand against my judgments. I'm going to pray for that dude. God wins, right? Another place that we went... Uh, toward the end of our trip, is we went to um, we went to Bali, um, which Bali is is not Muslim. Uh, Bali's Hindu, and it's a very interesting type of Hinduism. It's called Balinese Hinduism. Um, it's a Hinduism mixed with animism, and it's it's really really uh, um, dark. I think is the best way to describe it. It's just very very dark. All over Bali are idols everywhere to Hindu gods. Every house has a daily ritual where they have a little house that they built for their um, for their house idol, and you go out and you put things in there. And a family that can't feed its kids will still put food into this house you know, um, in order to uh, appease the gods for that day. And the stuff's still there at the end of the day. You know, like it's it's no one's coming and getting this. Um, but this is a law of a different kingdom that has taken over and that has run itself out. So um, this past Sunday and, and Monday was a national ho- ho- a holiday for Balinese Hindus. And the whole island is Hindu. And this was the uh, celebration of, of Niepi. Uh, Niepi is um, it's sort of like a cross between Halloween and Mardi Gras. Uh, I mean, just a, a, a massive, massive cultural party. And uh, so on Sunday, we knew this was happening. And there's no way I was going to be in this country with this wild cultural event happening and not be part of it on some level or another or at least see what was up. And so we rented these scooters and drove in the world's craziest traffic, uh, like an hour north. We were trying to get to the town of Kuta, which is one of the biggest cities on, uh, on Bali. Um, So, Nyepi is this. Nyepi is a village. Like, if Lebanon celebrated Nyepi, they would shut down Cumberland Street, and everybody would get all dressed up in sort of, like, vintage clothes, like, vintage Hindu garments and whatnot, and we would all build floats that we would carry um, on bamboo poles. So like, there'd be like 20 of us carrying this, this float. And this float was um, maybe like a platform about as big as this stage right here. And in the center of this, they would build these huge, big, ornate, I mean, really, really interestingly and strongly crafted um, idols, like, like pictures of their gods. And, and there'd be like a float for each god. And these gods were just, I mean, terrifying. If, if I was a little kid, like this is the kind of thing to put like nightmares in, in your head at night. And uh, so they would bring these things along and there'd be people playing music and lots of drums and gongs and things and and, 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 uh, and, and the music would play faster and they would make the, the, the idols start dancing, right? And so this thing would start dancing and everybody was hooting and hollering and laughing and it was people were dancing around. I don't know how they didn't trip over each other because there's like 20 dudes standing next to each other in a big block and they're all running around and there's this guys like bump, bumping up and down and everything and this is how they do the parade. So, like, we're trying to get to CUDA, and we can't get to CUDA because we keep running into all these parades. And so we would sort of stop on our scooters, and I would videotape these parades like a typical Westerner. And, uh, and people are bound, but they love it. And they love the fact that we're there, right? The fact that, like, that like there's Westerners who are engaging this with them. We eventually get to CUDA, uh, like, after a really long time. And uh, we, find, we, we, we somehow find our way to uh, the city center. Right, and at the city center was uh, Kuta, the capital of Bali, and so this was like a massive show, like the Mummers Parade kind of a thing, um, where the whole royal family was seated in these box, like in this box, and all of these clubs, like Hindu clubs, would come, and there would be these ornate dances and these incredible sculptures that these folks had made with these incredible dances. I don't know how they stayed in unison on. And this idol would be dancing and jumping up and down. People would be watching this and enjoying it. We ended up getting backed up against a centuries-old Hindu temple, right? And this Hindu temple had a wall about it this high, and it had a step like uh, maybe like 12 inches up. And it was hard to see over the crowd. And the missionary that we were with, our friend Paul, Paul's shorter uh, than I am, and I could barely see across the top, but he couldn't see much at all. So uh, he says to Tim, He goes, I'm going to try and climb up this wall. And Tim goes, who are you, Zacchaeus? And Paul reaches up, he steps up, and he reaches up, and he tries to pull himself up so that he can see over the crowd, and he breaks a big chunk of this ancient Hindu temple off. And he's like holding it in his hand. (laughs) And this dude next to him goes, what did you do in Indonesian? And Paul's like... I, I'm sorry, you know, like, what, what are you going to do? Did you catch this? What are you, Zacchaeus? Well, yeah, absolutely. Paul is absolutely someone who wants to see Jesus better in that situation. Paul, do you have any power to tear down the stronghold of Balinese Hinduism? on this land of Indonesia to which you are called? Apparently. Right? I started freaking out. I was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen! You know, that is so awesome! I reached up and tried to grab I couldn't pull anything off. I couldn't pull anything off. Paul won. Right? It, it, was, it was so cool. I, I mean, it, to, that is one of the coolest prophetic things I've ever been a part of, was when Paul reached up there and ripped off a piece of this centuries-old stone that's made it through monsoons, you know, and, and uh, it was just uh, standing there holding it, you know, like, like can the kingdom of God prevail? Like can Hindu temples fall before the glory, before the sons of God? Yes, yes, they can. Nyepi, party, is followed by Nyepi silence, right? So essentially what they do is they celebrate all the gods and they invite all the gods, like, hey, come to this party that we're having for you. Dancing around, and, you know, and so they, are, you know, they assume that, like, these idols are all enjoying what it is that they're being a part of. And, and I mean, it's, it's pretty freaky. It's, it's, it's very dark, no doubt about it. But they don't want the gods to stick around. I can understand why. These things are hideous. Right? But they don't want them to stick around, but they do want to have a party for them to make them feel good. So what they do is they go home, and they'll party all night long. But at 6 a.m. the next morning... It is absolute mandatory silence. The entire island shuts down. The airport shuts down. The only thing allowed to stay open is hospitals and emergency services. You know, like uh, police and firemen, paramedics, that kind of a thing. Um, Everybody else, you have to stay inside all day. You're not allowed to turn any lights on. You're not supposed to use anything electronic throughout throughout the entire day. Right? Nobody's allowed out on the beaches. Now, we were in a beachside villa, like in the And and, I mean, we were in a remote place, but we were right there. There was the ocean, right? And it was sort of like a touristy kind of an area. So we were like, eh, it's probably not that big a deal. And uh, we were hanging out in our villa, and there were monkeys around, and it was cool and whatnot, and we were like, we were still feeling the night before. And so we decided to, uh, to, like, pray and worship, and we had a guitar. And, you know, like, it's a touristy area. So I get out the guitar, and I start to play uh, the song uh, "Those Who Trust," right? Sort of little rockin' rocking uh, thing. I, I get about four measures into it, and the l- world's loudest whistle starts going off. Beep, 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 beep. These dudes start yelling at our villa, like in, in Indonesian. And Paul can understand them, but we can't. And he's like, "Dude, you're in trouble." Um, <laughs> and so I like look go, look out over, and the guys just yelling. And Paul's like translating what he's saying, and he's like, "He doesn't want you to." He doesn't want you to do this anymore. Um, we, like, they really take this thing really seriously. We need to be, we sh- you need to be quiet. Uh, at least that's what he's saying. Dude was just like a pirate. It was awesome. Um, a couple of the people got in trouble throughout that day. But that situation didn't set well with me. I, I wanted to worship God. This wasn't a civil holiday, right? The government didn't make a rule that said you had to be silent on this day. This was a religious holiday. What I knew was that God was telling me to worship him in the midst of this place. And Paul and Tim were feeling the same thing, too. Paul, Tim, and John. That's interesting. All right. Um, the, so, uh, like, man, I want to honor the culture where I am, but I want to be legit to who I am more. Like, what do I do in this situation? so I got the guitar back out and I played really quietly <laughs> really quiet no pick you know just like really really quietly and we worshiped God and prayed for like an hour and a half with the guitar and uh, and reading scriptures and just worshiping with God you know you don't you don't do spiritual warfare against a land that's not yours I'll never do that so like I'm not taking on the spirits of Hinduism in Bali you know but I can worship God wherever I am I'm a son you know what I mean and uh, it was this place. So, like, here was, here was a government, here was a gated decree from the gates of hell that says on this day, be quiet. But, man, if I don't praise Jesus, then the rocks are going to have to. And they seem tired today. And Jesus is telling me to. It's like, what am I going to do? Here's a government, and here's a government. Where will I be? Right? I think that this is what God is getting at when he's talking about setting up his kingdom. The reason why I chose that was because of this. Jesus gave me the keys to the kingdom of heaven. All right. next verse. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Right? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys are access to authority. A person that has keys to a building has some kind of authority regarding that building. It might be authority to just clean it, but it's authority for something. Right? There, there is a rite of passage in entering a building that if you have the keys, the keys is the kingdom of heaven. The keys here, they stand for this idea of authority. As a person in the kingdom of God, you have authority. Authority to what? You have authority to bind and to loose. You have authority to bind and to loose. Jesus says, whatever you bind will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You have authority to bind and to loose. But again, you don't have any idea what that means because you're not a Jew. You've got to think about this like a Jewish mindset. Right? And this I've taught you before, but I'm going to teach it again because it's mind-blowing. There's only one person allowed to bind and loose in Jewish culture. Only one person or one office. It's the office of a rabbi. Only a rabbi is allowed to bind or loose in culture in Jewish culture. And it's the way that they would teach. You get bound to So everybody believes the Torah. But when it comes to applying the Torah, different rabbis believe different things. And so when it comes to the Torah and the way that we, that we obey the Torah or don't obey the Torah, that's what it means to be bound. So this rabbi that might be following, uh, Rabbi Kushner, would say, when you butcher the sacrificial lamb, it's important that you slit the throat first and that you then make a, an incision, right, that goes north to south turn the body north to south because by turning it north to south the blood will drain better i bind you to this teaching this is not a stretch folks this was this is this detailed when it comes to like like torah application so let's say uh, rabbi kushner dies and i find a new rabbi to follow and this rabbi says you have heard it said that when you when you sacrifice the sacrificial lamb, you slit the throat, and then you cut it, and you make sure that, that body is lying north to south. I loose you from that teaching of Rabbi Kushner, and I bind you to the teaching that you should lie the body east to west for some other reason. Right? You have heard it said, da 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 da, da but I say unto you, da-da-da-da-da. Who else talks like that? Jesus. You've heard it said that you pray like this, but I say unto you, you pray like this. You've heard it said, fast like this. But I say unto you, you fast like this. Jesus is the rabbi who looses. Only a rabbi can do this. When Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I give you the keys. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. He is giving you authority to live according to his government. So that what you choose in accordance with who he is is the power that you bring to the kingdom of God here on earth where you are. You are a spiritually powerful person that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Now, this doesn't mean that you just run around willy-nilly, binding over here and loosing over there and telling this person to stop doing that and telling this person to do that. Don't be like that. (laughs) That was a good catch. Whatever you bind and whatever you loose, right? We we don't have a grammatical construction in English for this. This is a perfect participle, present perfect participle, right? So to, to get this, like, laid out, whatever you bind, whatever you loose, right? Whatever you bind on earth shall already be being bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall already be being loosed in heaven, right? You don't have the right to make decisions for God. You, it is your job to know your king so well and to be so consistently in his throne room and so consistently at his feet and so consistently living according to his government that all that you need to do is agree with what he says. Because God is at work all the time, binding and loosing, right? That's what he does. He sets the captives free. He binds the strong man, right? He, He destroys the work of the enemy. He gives life to people that don't have it. He is binding and loosing all the time. And when it comes to you and I and our lives and how we live, and when it comes to you and I and how you live at work or how you live in the midst of your family or what kind of a parent you are or what kind of a family member you are or how you love your friends or how you engage suffering, all of these things are places for you to live as an authoritative subject of the kingdom of God who's not just a subject but a son. Somebody who knows their father so intimately and who is so in tune with him that he sees what God is doing, where God is binding and loosing and saying, do you see what dad's doing? I bind that here. My father is loosing captives and so I will worship in the face of a religion that tells me not to on a certain day. Binding, loosing. It is agreement. Binding and loosing is knowing God so intimately that you are able to agree with him. One of the most important things about the Christian life is the idea of agreement. When you and I pray, it should be to always know God's heart so deeply that we can agree with it. When God asks us to ask him for wisdom, isn't it, he doesn't want us to just be like, so God, what do you think? Is there any advice you have for me in this situation? God's looking to inform us so that our agreement can be with him. When we lack wisdom, God gives it to us. And then we say, yes, that is better wisdom. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is already being worked out. The kingdom of God rests in the Son of God. The Son of God has forever vanquished sin, death, and the grave. All the other kingdoms have fallen. God's kingdom has risen. All the other kings bow. All the idols bow bow. Jesus is elevated. He's glorified. He's magnified. He's above everything else. There is no one who can stand before him. We all bow in worship because of his obedience, because of his death, because of his burial, because of his resurrection. And you and I, by the grace of God, are invited into his government with him. Not as fearful, cowering orphans saying, dear God, please love me again today. I hope that I pleased you well enough yesterday that I come back today. But if him saying come and not just not just observe what it is that I'm doing, but participate in what it is that I'm doing. I am building my kingdom. My kingdom has come. You are my sons and daughters. I have given you the keys of the kingdom. You're my called out ones. I've given you authority to stand in my ways, to know me, to bind and to loose in my name. So go be you. Go Build the kingdom. That's the government of God. And the gates of hell try to prevail against it. And when we forget who we are and who it is that God has called us to be, that's when the gates of hell prevail against us. But the kingdom of God stands forever. The kingdom of God is solid, the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. All things, all things come under him. And you and I have this deep privilege and joy of belonging and being in this work God's government, God's ways, God's kingdom. So then the natural question is all right, so what is it that I should bind and loose then? Well, come back next week come back next week, all right? And we will engage that very, very question. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus um, in Matthew 13, he, he goes on this big storytelling um, you know, section where he gives all these parables about the kingdom of heaven and what the kingdom of heaven is and what it means to to be engaged in the kingdom of heaven. He says a lot of different things. He talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a, a sower who goes out to sow seed. And he talks about the kingdom of heaven um, being like another sower who goes out to sow seed. And um, Weeds grow up among the, the good stuff, and there's good wheat, and there's tares and weeds among it, and you, you don't pull them out because you don't want to destroy the good stuff. And he talks about the kingdom of heaven being like um, a woman who... Uh, uh, who hid leaven, you know, about all kinds of different things. And it's funny because uh, he says toward the end of the teachings, he says, after telling them like ten stories of the kingdom of heaven that essentially make no sense to anybody, he says, have you understood all these things? And they said yes. (laughs) Um, You know, (laughs) it's such a typical Christian answer. All right, so everybody good with Matthew 16 today? Yep. Now I hope you leave here with so many more questions than you came in here with. Because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, like the more you know it and the more you grow into it and the more that you learn and know of its king, the more that you know how much more there is to know and to engage and how much deeper there is to be in it and how much, inc- how much more incredible he is than, than how incredible we already thought that he was. The kingdom of God is not a concept for the Christian to ever be like, all right, I'm good. Which is why Jesus speaks about it in such deeply mysterious ways. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the tiniest little seed you can imagine that grows into the largest of all garden plants. Like the kingdom of God is so big because God is so big. So, In this time that we spend together talking about the government of God, the goal of every one of these teachings is for you to leave here with so many more questions, to want to get before God so much more, to want to get into his word so much more, to find out what is this thing that I am a part of and what does it mean for me to be a part of it? Binding and loosing? Cool. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? I mean, God has these things for you. Please, folks, by all means, do not just come here on Sunday and hope that we can give you another good hour's shot worth for you to walk out with and be like, all right, I got it. And let God expose the mystery of who he is to you and let your mind expand in wonder. C.S. Lewis said it best. If you approach God or his word and leave not feeling wonder, then you have not approached God or his word. So allow God to put within you, like, veiled truth that requires seeking. Allow him to invite you into his mysterious presence to go up on the mountain like Moses did, where it might be a little scary to go, you know, to be in a whirlwind with him like Elijah and find out that maybe things, not, not everything is what it seems. A- follow him there and watch his kingdom unleash itself in your life. Thank you, God, for the depths of who you are. Enlighten each of us, Father. Open to us the deep mysteries of you that you have revealed to us through Jesus and through his gospel. And may we each, each one of us, take up our role and our part in what it means for us to be a part of the kingdom of God, to live according to your government, to possess the authority of the keys of the kingdom, binding what you are already binding, loosing what you are already loosing, standing in the deep confidence that the gates of hell cannot even prevail against your chosen ones. Mm -hmm. Root us in this confidence, God, and send us from this place to know you more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.